Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome again to Christchurch. This morning, we are looking at that passage. Valerie, thank you for reading it to us, the road of the cross and counting the cost. So let's look at that passage briefly, and then let's look at our own cross-carrying. This passage is basically about Jesus preaching the gospel. Jesus starts by praying, which so often in Luke signals a moment of significance that something important is going to happen. But it doesn't sound very important to start off with, does it? The questioning was uh, innocuous, maybe even gossip. The crowds, what do others say? What are they saying about me? We often want to hear what others are saying about us, don't we? Or maybe we don't. But the crowds don't get Jesus. They're wrong. So it quickly moves from outer to inner and then to him, to Jesus himself. So, but first of all, he says to the disciples, what do you say? Now, what do you think if you'd have been there? Were you surprised that Jesus asked the question? But it surely must have been a question that they were asking themselves. Or maybe Jesus had caught or seen them talking among themselves and he knew what they were asking. So what did the inner core say? What did those disciples say? Peter, as always, the spokesman, and his response, short and to the point, God's Messiah, the Messiah, the Deliverer, the one who would free Israel from all her enemies. Now, of course, it's hard for us because we know the answer. We know that Jesus is the Messiah, but not like that. So it's easy to forget that the disciples at this stage of the gospel were on a voyage of discovery. But the answer that Peter gives is crucial. And it comes not from books, or even, I suspect, from great knowledge of his history, his tribe's history. It springs purely from what he and the other disciples had witnessed in the ministry of Jesus. And a ministry in which they were not just um, witnessing but they were participating. They're not just anymore just being bystanders. The disciples had been appointed to preach, and they had power and authority to cast out demons and to heal. And maybe Jesus, uh, Peter was finally convinced by the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, which happens just before this passage, and where the disciples had served in that extraordinary meal and very importantly, the clearing up. And they'd also witnessed, in chapter 8, Jesus calming the storm. So Peter had been convinced, and his answer was short and simple, God's Messiah. And Jesus, look at the passage, Jesus is in agreement with the answer, but he puts his own shape on it. Jesus' confirmation of the answer is to say, The time's not right. Don't tell anyone. Why not? Well, I think possibly because if they announce Jesus as Messiah, they're in for disappointment because he wasn't the sort of Messiah, the deliverer, that they're expecting. They wanted someone who'd be head of a vast and successful army, who'd sweep away Roman rule and establish a mighty kingdom on earth. But that would be a false notion. That wasn't the way Jesus was going to do it. And it's at this stage 
the outer core, those who knew or heard of Jesus, had to be taught further because before Jesus would identify himself explicitly to the public. But the time was right for Jesus to articulate the sort of deliverer he is, he was going to be for the disciples. This is explicit. Let's look briefly at what will happen to this Messiah. No heading up a mighty empire. Instead, look at the process. He's going to suffer. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be killed. And who by? The people that you would think would recognize him and would want to follow him and support him. The religious establishment, the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, not the Roman occupiers. And perhaps this answer, this realization, comes as a shock to the disciples. It's the first time in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus had explicitly predicted his death. And only after that suffering, only after that rejecting and that killing, would we see hope. Because Jesus prophesied on the third day that he would be raised to life. But even though Jesus did explain explicitly, clearly, to the, to the inner core, to the disciples, what was to happen, they did not fully understand it until they'd actually lived through the events. So there again, there'd be no point in trying to tell anyone else, would there? What's also interesting to note, I think, in this passage is there is no explanation of why this must happen. Jesus just says it must happen. There's no hint of Jesus atoning for our sins. Uh, There's no interest in the theology or even the history of sacrifice. It's just Jesus telling us that it's going to happen and it must happen. And instead, Jesus now then seems more interested in switching the focus away from him to us. And I think this is what makes it such an extraordinary passage. Jesus is basically teaching and preaching the gospel. And we talk about that a lot, don't we, in this church. But perhaps in this age and this location, we're quite uncertain what we mean by preaching the gospel. But the passage is as clear as it is remarkable. It's outrageous. And Jesus presents us with teaching whose meaning is not obscured or even difficult to understand. And it's this, the destiny of all humanity is based upon one's relationship to him, to Jesus. And perhaps in a week where it seems that evil may be overcoming good, this passage reminds us today that one day all will will bow the knee before the God of mercy and compassion and all will proclaim Christ as Lord. But if Jesus is explicit about what will happen to him, he's also explicit to us about what salvation consists of. Look at the passage again. It consists of following him, of losing or surrendering one's life to him, and not being ashamed of him or his teaching. Whoever wants to be a disciple of Jesus, this is the membership fee. Self-denial and life-losing taking up the cross daily, but for, and for disciples, well, the cross in some ways has become a metaphor for us. It, the disciples knew what the cross meant. It was a means of execution, and it was horrible. It was a nasty, cruel, and shameful death. It's not exactly a good sales pitch, is it? And here we have the paradox of following Jesus. Whoever there loses their life for me, 
Only by losing our life for Jesus will we save it. But how does that make any sense? The gospel has a cost, had a cost for Jesus, for the first disciples, and for all of those who have followed Jesus in the years since. Whoever loses their life for me. It's an important saying for Jesus. It can be found in all four Gospels. And in Luke and Matthew, we hear it twice. A few other sayings of Jesus is given so much emphasis, so perhaps we should reflect on it. But we all know, isn't it? It's It's certainly for me, it's tempting to concentrate on our own lives, our own agendas, our own passions. And instead, Jesus challenges us to concentrate on him and his kingdom to put him at the center. Some may be tempted, and indeed they were, to think that following Jesus is too difficult or too complicated. And I think we should be wary of overcomplicating what our response should be to Jesus. The response to Jesus is to believe and to repent, to turn away from those things that in our lives that obscures or hinders our relationship with Jesus. And this ties in with our understanding of the nature of Jesus. Jesus doesn't ask us to recognize him as a real historical figure, a good man, an extraordinary teacher. It's simply this. He wants us to understand that we need to trust him alone for our eternal well-being. I'm sure some of you, time to time at work, have enjoyed performance reviews, a chance to sit down and see how you're doing. How would a performance review of our Christian walk look like? Not only as individuals, but as a community, as this family here. I suspect most of us might think that we've struggled to take up our cross. Maybe we have crosses to bear, and I'll come to those later, but maybe we think we don't have much choice about them. So how do we answer tough questions? Is Christ the master of my life? Have I put to death my own plans and committed myself to his will? And what is my response if we're told, don't be satisfied with anything less, for there is no greater joy in life than following Christ every day. Do you feel that? Great joy in following Christ every day? But we should. We should have joy for this place and for this church and for this people. And you know, we're all volunteers in this church, even those who receive what passes for a payslip. In 21st century Britain, there's no pressure. There's no pressure from society to come here this morning What compels us to roll out of bed, especially on a morning where the clocks have changed? Well, I'll tell you what it is. It's the whispering of the Holy Spirit. And we're we're called to follow Jesus unto death. Maybe for some of us that will happen. But for most of us, the reality is following Jesus in this life. Jesus talks of taking up our cross daily. In In life, we sacrifice ourselves. And God has placed us here, in this part of London, in our homes, in this community, in this church. It's here that he wants to work for the further runs of the kingdom of God. And it's here today that we bear our cross. As we approach the middle of Lent, this Sunday, we celebrate Mothering Sunday. Where are the flowers? The flowers are there. It's the fourth Sunday of Lent, uh, three weeks before Easter. And in this period of Lent... It's a time of repentance and reflection. And we set aside time to think not only of motherhood, but of the role of women in our lives and in the church. No doubt some will be celebrating Mother's Day with chocolates and flowers and lunch. 
And if the, if the loved ones have taken the advice of electrical retailers' curries, you have the perfect gift of the Apple Watch awaiting you. There you go. That's what Mother's Day is before. But as I say, at Christchurch, we celebrate and mark all that women do, not just mothers, in this place and beyond. And part of this is acknowledging the sadness and the grief that may come in many forms when we reflect on what mothers and what motherhood may mean to us. It can mean absence or brokenness or a sense of failing. And Christ knows your heart this morning, whether it's joyous or whether it's sorrowing. He knows those who mourn for their mothers or for their sense of motherhood. And he knows those mothers and those fathers who grieve over their children, who worry over them as they face life's difficult or often desperate situations. What we like to think of should be unadulterated joy in this fallen world is sometimes just the opposite. And motherhood, or lack of it, can be a cross to be carried as well as a blessing. Perhaps we do recognize the cross we personally carry, but sometimes it's easier to see the burdens that others have to bear. And I think that church works best when through the loving spirit of God we can understand and so in part at least share each other's burdens. And we know stories in this church, in this congregation of difficulties and of pain and suffering. But church works through best, works best when through the grace of God we choose the path of love and of sacrifice. Uh, I was helping to serve, as many do, in shelter this week, the homeless shelter that's here on a Monday night. And it was a slightly chaotic evening. Uh, they're all slightly chaotic evenings. Some guests, uh, guests some known, some unknown, uh, some invited, some not invited, kept turning up later and later throughout the evening. Hasn't been a good time or season for timekeeping. And as I was on the door, I kept asking the kitchen volunteers for more, for a hot drink or soup or a meal to be reheated. Uh, and it got later and later, and they were definitely thinking it was time to go home. But they sacrificed more of their time than they were hoping or maybe expecting. And that's how it happens sometimes. We are asked to carry one burden further and longer than we thought we could ever do. But we can do. With the grace of God, we can. And I think I've tended to think of cross-carrying as a solo activity, and it is sometimes. It may be something that we seem not to have much choice but to carry. But there's also an idea that we choose, and it's an important element, that we make an active choice in embracing the giving up of something and the taking up of the cross. And I think it can be something as simple as thinking nicer thoughts about people, not saying that sharp word, helping people out, welcoming people in this church like at the welcoming course that we're doing at the moment. It doesn't have to be that difficult. And it also can be something that God asks us to do as a whole community. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was volunteered by Richard to go to a New Wine regional conference. Uh, our vicar, Richard, is now a regional director of New Wine, as I'm sure many of you know, and he was leading it there, and of course he did it brilliantly. And one of the speakers was a lady called uh, Debbie Wright, I think, and her church is a vineyard church in Nottingham. Um, and what she said about it, I managed to sneak in and listen to the talk, made me go and look at the website of her church because uh, I was intrigued by the story and the way they'd built the church. 
They make it clear on their website what they ask of those who want to become a member of their church. And this is it. It's come along on a Sunday, join a small group, find somewhere to serve, and give give a portion of your income regularly to the church. Four things. Come, join, serve, give. Now, I think in Christchurch we do that, but maybe we don't do it, we do ask that, but I don't think we do it quite as explicitly and quite as openly as um, Debbie's Vineyard Church. And I'm not suggesting to Richard that we do this, but what I'm just saying is that they make it clear. It's not a theological statement. It's not about how they have to accept Jesus. It's saying, if you want to become a member of the church, do this, 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 and this. And it's a clear way of starting, of saying this is the cost. This is how you can deny yourself and start to follow Jesus. So, how are we doing on our performance view, in our performance review? What are we willing to risk as followers of Jesus? What parts of our life are we prepared to lay down as his followers? What does it mean for us, both personally and as this community, to take up our cross and follow him. Tom Wright, the former Bishop of Durham, challenges us as follows. Jesus is not leading us on a pleasant afternoon hike, but but on a walk into danger and risk. Or did we suppose that the kingdom of God would mean merely a few minor adjustments in our ordinary lives? If we take those steps of obedience, however small, however tentative, however hesitant, I think we as a church and as individuals have found that we are rewarded and blessed by God more generously and in more ways than we could have imagined. So this Lent, let us reflect and come before again, come before God again and ask what cross are we being told to take up daily? Amen.